Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Bristol, and I am a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Thomas Schmidinger about his new book, Rojava, Revolution, War, and the Future of Syria's Kurds, is an exploration of the history and present of Syrian Kurdistan. It is an excellent introduction to a fraught topic, one drawn from extensive firsthand ethnographic research. It presents multiple perspectives from both major and minor political parties, as well as the perspective of Kurds and other ethnic groups living within Syrian Kurdistan. Included is an accessible and useful history of the complicated party politics among the Kurds themselves, as well as Kurdistan's relations with not just the Syrian government, but also regional states. In this interview, we begin by discussing Professor Schmidinger's past experience in Kurdistan, how he became interested in the region, as well as how he managed to conduct research in a politically fraught and war-torn environment. We then move on to a discussion of what Syrian Kurdistan is like today, how its government is structured, what its relationship with other parts of greater Kurdistan and other nation-states are like, as well as the effects of the refugee crisis on Syria's Kurds. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Schmidinger, for joining us here at New Books, uh, the New Books Network uh, the anth- on the Anthropology Channel. I hope everything is going well in Austria and that you're enjoying a nice, cool fall after a hot summer. I was uh, curious about this book. We're talking about uh, Rojava, Revolution, War, and the Future of Syria's Kurds. And... Um, it's a, it's a very interesting book that involved a lot of field work and uh, some some um, very difficult conditions. So I was wondering first if you could tell us a bit about yourself and then a bit about the field work and what led you to write this book. Uh, well, I'm in I'm interested in Kurdistan and the region even longer than I'm uh, uh, I'm, I'm studying political science or social anthropology. So I met, in fact, my first Kurdish friends in my home region in Austria when I was 16 or so. And I traveled to Syria the first time in 1999 when I was still a student at Vienna University. And I visited also the Kurdish parts of Syria back then in Kamishli. Uh, However, my, let's say, scientific research uh, concerning the courts of Syria started later on uh, when I worked mainly with uh, Syrian courts in exile in Europe. Uh, so I did start with proper fieldwork, in fact, uh, in the diaspora. And later on, when the territories of the courts in Syria were liberated by Kurdish forces, in 2012, I started to travel to Rojava, to Syrian Kurdistan, uh, more regularly. Uh, so the book is mainly based on several field uh, visits in uh, Syrian Kurdistan since January 2013, and of course on the uh, yeah, and on, on on my experience with uh, diaspora courts from Syria. 
uh, long back uh, to the 1990s. Oh, that's great. So uh, when when do you usually make it to Rojava? Is there a particular time of year that you uh, prefer to go? No, actually, I've been there in January, February, summer. No, I can't say that. It, it depends mainly on my opportunity to go there. Uh, and of course, it's not very easy to travel to Rojava. You have to do a lot of negotiations with uh, other Kurdish parties in Iraq, for example. Uh, the border crossing is never easy. Uh, I crossed from Turkey and I crossed from Iraq. And it was always a lot of, uh, let's say, diplomatic negotiations necessary to enter to the region. So it depends also on uh, on the opportunity when it's possible to go. Yeah, and so when you do the travel there, how, how do you? What's your entree? Do you um, at this point in time is it uh, mostly through um, personal contacts, or do, is there any governments involved, or what's a, what's the logistics look like? Well, I I, I did it in several different ways. And this was also important for me to get different perspectives. In fact, in a territory that is uh, at least close to to military front lines, it's not so easy to move uh, as a private person. Most of the times you need uh, at least the an official permission or a semi-official permission from the uh, Kurdish authorities in the region. However, I did not only go with uh, the PID, the ruling party there, and the YPG, their, uh, the People's Defense Forces, their um, military unit, uh, but I also went there once with, uh, an oppos- with people from an opposition party who are opposing uh, the role of the PAD and YPG in the region who are closer to uh, Masoud Bazani's PDK in Iraq. And I also went there once uh, without any uh, official involvement, uh, just organizing the trip with uh, private friends or relatives of friends in the region. Uh, and this was very important for me to see more than just what is presented by certain political parties. I wanted to have a multi-perspective opportunity to see different things in the region. And I did not want to talk only with people from one political direction. And this is only possible if you enter uh, in different ways. And so what was um, an interview like? Obviously, uh, you have a lot of different, more and less curated experiences. So how, how did you find your informants? And did you sit down with them in offices? Were the interviews kind of surreptitious? What 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 was the interviewing environment like? That, that's very different with each interview. Uh, there were some uh, official environments when you're talking to ministers, for example, of the administration of the so-called Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. Obviously, you meet them in their office and it's a very official environment. With other people, uh, with 
some young opposition activists, for example, I just uh, sat down in their families with them on the floor in their house and I ate with them and they told me about their background and their stories and their opinions. Uh, other people, for example, with the, the, the Armenian priest I talked, and you find the interview in the book as well, I just talked with him uh, in, in, besides his church. So uh, it's, it's, it's very different uh, uh, with each interview. Uh, however, of course, all the people knew that I do an interview with them for the purpose of, of publishing something on Rojava. Uh, the, the very early interviews were not even... Uh, planned at this time it was not even planned to to write a book uh, i just wanted to uh, write some articles but i had such a lot of material at the end of the day that i decided that uh, it definitely has to be uh, a larger piece so uh, all of the interview of the people i did an interview with knew that it will be somehow published, but uh, the context was not clear at the beginning at all. Well, and I think this is really a uh, fantastic uh, work. We don't have very many books like it, so I'm, I'm glad you were able to do it. So moving on to some of the um, more material in the book, I was wondering, you go into a lot of detail about the history and the formation of this moment uh, in Syria and Kurdistan, but I was wondering, could you give us kind of a snapshot of what Rojava in Syrian, Syria and Kurdistan looks like right now? Well, right now, it's a very difficult situation for the Syrian court because uh, there are more or less three regions with a Kurdish majority population in Syria. One is in the northeast. This is the Jazeera region. One is in the center north, the Kobani region, and one is in the west, which is Afrin. And one of these three regions, Afrin, is now since uh, early 2018, when Turkey conquered that region in a two months war between January and March. Uh, this region is now under Turkish occupation. Uh, Turkey is cooperating with a variety of different Syrian militias uh, to occupy the territory. Some of these militias are quite hardcore jihadi militias, other, others are not. But all of them have strong resentments against the Kurds. And uh, nearly 200,000 Kurds fled this region, uh, and Turkey tries to prevent uh, these. Uh, refugees or these displaced persons to return to their home region. It's very, it's especially difficult for members of religious minorities in this region. There are a lot of Yazidis uh, and, and also some Christians and Alevis who live in that region uh, and they suffer a lot uh, under the, especially under the Islamist militias who work together with uh, Turkey there. Uh, and uh, Turkey and these militias also reset uh, Arabs from other parts of Syria into that region. So there are enormous demographic changes going on. Uh, houses were 
occupied uh, olive gardens were destroyed or just taken away from their owners. Uh, there were also uh, desecrations of, of cemeteries, attacks on uh, on sacred places of the Yazidis by uh, Islamist militias. So in this region, in Afrin, there is really a, a very harsh and brutal uh, regime of occupation going on at the moment. And although the Kurds are still struggling against this occupation, uh, it is out of question that Turkey controls the territory together with its predominantly Islamist allies. And uh, Turkey is also responsible for the humanitarian crisis in that region. Further to the east, uh, the region of Kobani and the Cesira is still under control of uh, the Kurdish forces and their Arab allies. There the situation is much better. However, uh, as you can imagine, uh, also there is a lot of insecurity about the future of the region. At the moment, it definitely looks like that the Syrian regime won the war, although it did not yet reconquer all territories in Syria. Uh, and at the moment, uh, the Syrian regime is focused on the territories held by Arab opposition militias supported by Turkey in Idlib. However, at the end of the day, uh, the regime never accepted uh, the autonomy of the Kurds in this region. And the Kurds there are strongly depending on the uh, support of the United States and France, were both present with uh, troops in the region, and nobody knows how uh, how much they can trust to this military support, and uh, if at the end of the day uh, they will be able to negotiate some kind of autonomy, at least for them, uh, in a post-war situation. Uh, it's also possible that uh, that the United States government would drop them and uh, the regime could reconquer the territory or something like that. So there's a lot of insecurity about the future in this territory. However, at the moment, uh, the situation for the people there is much better than in Afrin, of course. There is a certain degree of stability a certain degree of economic stability as well. Uh, and for example, the city of Kobani that was completely destroyed in 2014 and 2015, early 2015, by uh, the so-called Islamic State and uh, uh, the struggle the Kurds had with the so-called Islamic State. Uh, the city of Kobani is mostly rebuilt until now. And uh, it, it, uh, you see new houses there, new streets, new roads, uh, a lot of new little uh, workshops and, and, and small companies going on there. It's a very busy town, although, of course, the uh, psychological uh, consequences of what happened in 2014 are still very present for many inhabitants of the town and also a part of the population did never return to Kobani and uh, ended up as refugees in Europe. However, uh, the Kurds managed to rebuild this city under very difficult circumstances and under 
uh, under circumstances of, of economic blockade of uh, both the Syrian regime and uh, the Turkish state. So the border uh, from Turkey to, to Rojava is mainly closed. It's very, very hard to, to trade uh, between Turkey and these territories. Uh, nevertheless, they managed to rebuild Kobani. Nevertheless, the Kurds managed to run uh, basic services in the whole region. You have uh, a system of education that is run by the uh, Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. So I think especially if you compare the situation with other parts of Syria, uh, the situation in these two regions in Kobani and the Jazeera is much better than anywhere else. This does not mean that there is a revolutionary and democratic paradise in that region. Yeah, in the book, you discuss a little bit about what you've brought up, the um, interesting and sometimes very tense relationship between the various Kurdish parties and their political ideals um, and many people know kind of about the revolutionary nature of, of some of these parties. So I would I was wondering if you could kind of expound on that a little bit. And, and, and what is what is this civil war revolution political philosophy mean to the parties in Rojava? Mm-hmm. As we have very different Kurdish parties uh, in Rojava. Uh, you have to keep in mind that the first Kurdish party in Syria was established already in 1956-57, which was back then a sister party of the Democratic Party of Kurdistan that was already established in uh, the Iranian and Iraqi part of Kurdistan. Uh, however, this party split into a dozen of different parties, and as anywhere in the world, you have more right-wing and more left-wing parties, more traditional and more progressive parties. Uh, and many of these parties, in fact, that are spring-offs of this uh, historic democratic party of Kurdistan in Syria, are now in opposition to the leading party, which is mainly the Democratic Union Party, PYD. This party is, in fact, a party that was or that followed the line of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, that was established in Turkey, in the Turkish part of Kurdistan. And in 1979, uh, its leader, Abdullah Öcalan, uh, went to exile to Syria. And in the 1980s, he was supported by the Syrian regime against Turkey because Syria had a lot of issues with Turkey at that time. However, in uh, 1998, uh, Syria had to expel Abdullah Öcalan uh, because it was under strong pressure of Turkey to do so. And as we know, Abdullah Öcalan uh, started a journey all over the world and was finally kidnapped by the Turkish by Turkish agents in Kenya. Uh, after this, uh, 1999. The PKK went through a major political crisis because it's very tough for a quite authoritarian party where the leader of the party had a lot of power when this leader is suddenly in the hands of the enemy. Uh, and Abdullah Öcalan was, was 
put to trial in Turkey and originally even uh, condemned to, to, to death, although he was not hanged and he is still in prison in Turkey. However, the party did reorganize and in Syria, the supporters of the party established their own Syrian Kurdish party, and this is now this PYD, this Democratic Union Party. Uh, and the party also uh, transformed its ideology to a certain point. And this transformation was still mainly done by or initiated by its leader, Abdullah Öcalan, even though he was in prison. But uh, a lot of texts of Abdullah Öcalan were uh, yeah, smuggled out from the prison through uh, his lawyers. Uh, and in fact, this former Marxist-Leninist uh, Nationalist Party uh, transformed into a party that followed a kind of left-wing libertarian uh, communalism uh, inspired by some of the uh, American eco-anarchist thinkers, especially Murai Bukhchin, uh, and uh, Abdullah Öcalan became a real admirer of Murai Bukhtin, and he refers a lot to him. Uh, and the idea of the movement is now that not a Kurdish nation-state should be established, but a kind of a council democracy based on, on regional autonomy. So the Kurds should not have a Kurdish state anymore, but... A kind of of of, uh, of 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 a collection of of regional autonomous regions that also would include non-Kurdish national minorities in the region. What was always very present in the ideology of the PKK and also of the PED was also the uh, the feminist position of the uh, of the movement. Uh, Today, for example, all important positions in Rojava are uh, set by a, a dual leadership. So you have always each mayor has a female and a male mayor. Each, uh, each, each high-ranking politician has a, a male and a female uh, politician for the same position. And uh, although this is partly for sure on a symbolic level, already this symbol changed a lot in a society where, uh, where all the daily interactions are still strongly dominated by a very patriarchal and very conservative society. Uh, it truly needs a lot of time to change this patriarchal thinking. So this is not something that will, will, will transform the Kurdish society from one day to another. However, I think uh, the sheer existence of, of, of armed women units, for example, and the sheer existence of female politicians in important political positions already changed a lot especially if you compare it to the completely patriarchal structures of other militias in the civil war in Syria. 
however, there are still a lot of authoritarian aspects in a political party that was always very uh, authoritarian. So uh, I think there are there are let's say there are rival uh, centers of power in the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. Uh, and some of the questions that raise up uh, in this context are questions we know from other revolutionary situations in history as well, like uh, uh, Russia in 1917 or, uh, or the Spanish Civil War. Uh, because although you can establish a council democracy as a bottom-up structure and as a very democratic structure, there are other... Uh, power structures that exist parallel to this uh, council democracy. And this is the political party that is not bottom-up at all. It's a top-down structure. And especially the militia, the military, uh, that is also a, a top-down structure. And you can not efficiently uh, lead a war uh, with a, with a bottom-up militia, it's definitely a top-down structure. And the longer uh, the longer a civil war continues, the more this militaristic aspect of power uh, becomes stronger, uh, also in comparison to these uh, bottom-up structures of the council democracy. So I think... Uh, the question of democracy in the region is still very open, and it depends also strongly on the future development of Syria as a whole uh, and the possibilities to develop democratic structures in such a Syria. And at the moment, to be honest, I'm not very optimistic concerning that, uh, not predominantly because of the courts, but predominantly because of uh, of the regime and the support the regime gets from especially Russia and Iran uh, and the sheer fact that the, the space that will allow democratic developments in the future uh, might be very limited. Yeah, so that's very interesting. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the countercurrents between authoritarianism and this council democracy. What exactly do they look like on the ground? Could you give us an example of, say, one of the militia top-down structure and an example of kind of this bottom-up structure as well? Let me say it like this. This bottom-up structures, the, the council democracies, they play an important role in uh, organizing the daily lives of people. However, as soon as there might be a contradiction between uh, military decisions and uh, decisions of these council democratic structures, uh, the military is the stronger one because uh, the sheer possibility to continue this council democracy depends on the success of the military. i tell you one uh, concrete example. Uh, after Kobani was liberated and the Kurdish territories uh, were uh, reconquered by the Kurdish People's Defense Forces, uh, it was very unpopular in uh, most of the parts of the Kurdish population of Syria 
to continue the war against Daesh, against the so-called Islamic State. Because most of the Syrian Kurds thought, well, now we liberated our territory, why should we bleed for the Arabs? Why should our sons and daughters die in Raqqa or Darassur against the so-called Islamic State? Uh, we are done with our liberation. This was an opinion you could hear with a lot of Syrian Kurds at this time. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the Kurdish uh, People's Defense Forces, the YPG, continued its war against the so-called Islamic State. And the reason for that was not just sheer internationalism or anti-fascism or something like that, but the reason for that was that the United States uh, made, uh, made it a... The, the United States said, we, we only support you in the future if you play the role of ground troops for us in our struggle against the so-called Islamic State. So the military cooperation between the United States and the Kurds depended on the fact that the Kurds continued to fight the so-called Islamic State, even in territories they were not interested in. Uh, so, the, in, in fact, the, the, the Americans told the YPG to form uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces as, as an umbrella organization with Arab forces and some Turkmen and Syrian forces so that uh, the Americans can support a larger uh, unified force and uh, can tell their Turkish allies uh, that they are not supporting the PKK, they are just supporting the Syrian Democratic Forces. And uh, although most of the Kurds did not want to continue the armed struggle, they did continue the armed struggle because it was a necessity to, to, uh, to keep the support of the United States. So, it was not the councils of the council democratic system that decided about uh, the continuation of the war against the so-called Islamic State. Obviously, it was a decision of the armed forces, and uh, they decided this according to the necessity of a continuation of the uh, of, of the alliance with the United States. This is just one example, but here you see. The, the large strategic decisions, uh, they are definitely not uh, decided in these councils. Uh, they are decided by a relatively small group in the leadership of the, the armed forces. And so going along those lines, we saw not just the um, Syrian Kurds and the uh, uh, PUD fighting against uh, the so-called Islamic State. We also saw, with American assistance, uh, the Iraqi Kurds doing the same thing. And in your book, you indicate that there's some strong tension between the Syrian and the Iraqi Kurds that might kind of belie a typical picture of a completely united Kurdistan. So I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit about that. What, what is the relationship between these parties in Syria and Iraq? Well, uh, the political parties of the Iraqi Kurds are not even uh, 
uh, you know, it's, it's very complicated. Uh, in fact, we have two large political parties in Iraqi Kurdistan, and they control two different parts of Iraqi Kurdistan. So there's not even a unified Iraqi Kurdistan. There's a part of the Kurdish territory in the north with its capital Erbil or Hawler, how it's called in Kurdish, that is mainly controlled by the Democratic Party of Kurdistan and the Barzani family. And there's a territory to the south with the with the capital of Sulaymaniyah that is predominantly controlled by the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, PUK, a party that was established by the former Iraqi president, Jalal Talabani. Uh, although the PUK is not the strongest party in that region anymore, uh, and it's challenged by a, a split-off group of the PUK called Goran. Uh, it's the PUK who still controls the Peshmerga, so the armed forces in this part of Iraqi Kurdistan. So uh, the uh, PDK, so the Democratic Party of Kurdistan and the Peshmerga of the PDK, uh, controlled by the Barsani family in the north of Iraqi Kurdistan, they are the major rivals of the PKK and of the PID in Syrian Kurdistan. So for them, uh, the Syrian Kurdish administration is, uh, is yeah, it, it is, is more or less an enemy. Uh, they did support the YPG in Syria, so the, the armed forces of the Syrian Kurds, uh, in the struggle uh, against the so-called Islamic State in Kobani. But most of the time, for example, the border between Iraqi and Syrian Kurdistan there is closed for normal people to cross. It takes a lot of time and, and diplomatic discussions to get the permission to cross this border, although both sides of the border are controlled by Kurdish forces, by the Peshmerga of the PDK in Iraq, and by the Asaish and, and YPG fighters of the Syrian Kurds on the Syrian side of the border. The situation is a bit different for the PUK, for the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, further to the south. Uh, the PUK has a long rivalry with the PDK, and there was also a, a brief civil war in Iraqi Kurdistan in the 1990s, and until today, both parties do not particularly like each other. Let's say it like this. Both of them have their own uh, military units, their own Peshmerga, their own police forces. They wear different uniforms. Uh, and, and partly there are also different rules in Sulaymaniyah and Erbil. Uh, and the PUK uh, has a much better relationship to the Syrian courts and to the PKK than the PDK, also thanks to this rivalry with the PDK. Uh, so the PUK is not a member of the larger uh, political family of the PKK, but it's somehow in between between the PDK and the PKK PED. Uh, this is something you can see also on the ground in uh, Syrian Kurdistan, because 
at the beginning uh, of the Syrian civil war, uh, the sister party of the PUK and the sister parties of the PDK uh, formed an umbrella organization in uh, Syrian Kurdistan called the Kurdish National Council. Uh, meanwhile, the sister organization of the PUK left this umbrella organization, although it did not join the administration of the PED. Uh, so the PUK somehow, or the sister party of the PUK, somehow playing the role of a of a neutral group between the two major rivals, the Kurdish National Council, supported by uh, Masoud Barzani's PDK in Iraq, and the administration of the Democratic Federation of Syria and Kurdistan. So you see, the Kurdish Kurdish politics is quite complicated, and there's not one single Kurdish political entity or one single Kurdish political force. There are different political forces. Many of them, or at least the two major forces, the PDK and the PKK, are very strong rivals with each other, and this has to do also with the the uh, decades-long problem in Kurdish politics that, um, that the nation-states in the region often supported Kurdish groups in their neighboring countries uh, to put pressure on these countries while uh, oppressing their own courts. For example, the PUK in Iraq was often supported Iran against Iraq, uh, and the PDK in the north of Iraqi Kurdistan uh, established very good contacts with Turkey in the last years. Uh, and of course, Turkey is the major enemy for the PKK and its sister parties on the other side. So when we are talking about Kurdish politics, we are always talking also about the regional politics in the region and uh, attempts to instrumentalize Kurdish forces by uh, the different nation states in the region. Yes, that's a, it's a very complicated story and kind of an unfortunately familiar one for politics in the Middle East. Uh, you know, I think you also often see kind of the instrumentalization, as you put it, of different uh, national identities, ethnic identities, and religious identities as well. Uh, so kind of moving to a more micro level, I was wondering if you could tell us, you mentioned some very interesting things about the rebuilding in Kobania and other things. What What is life like, everyday life like for uh, the Kurdish people in Syria and Kurdistan right now? Well, uh, here we also have to differentiate between the situation in Afrin and in uh, Kobani and the Jazeera. In Afrin, it's really tough at the moment. Uh, a lot of infrastructure was destroyed during the war, and uh, there's a, a major insecurity for every Kurd in the region because there are a lot of kidnappings going on. Uh, uh, and there are different uh, Syrian Arab militias there who treat the local Kurdish population uh, in, in, in very different ways. Uh, there are reports of 
kidnapped women. Uh, there are reports of 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 extra legal executions of of courts in the region who are um, seen as as supporters of the PED and the YPG. So the life there is really challenging. Also, the economic life in the region collapsed during the war. And and people are depending on uh, on humanitarian aid delivered, in fact, by Turkish institutions. So Turkey uses also this humanitarian aid to, uh, to fix their influence in the region, because if you're not working with Turkey, you just don't get uh, food and any other kind of humanitarian aid. The situation in uh, Kobani and, and the Chisira is very different. Um, if you go to the markets in towns like Amude or Derik or Talabiat, uh, you will find most of the goods you could imagine people would need. There are a lot of small shops uh, in the markets. Uh, you even find uh, mobile phones, for example, or computers. However, many of these uh, imported technical goods are very expensive, and only people can afford them who are who have some relatives, for example, abroad, or who are relatively rich. Uh, Food prices also increased in the last years, especially prices for meat, uh, because there's a lot of export business of of Syrian sheep, for example, going on. Uh, Thousands of sheep are exported to Iraq, especially during the uh, Muslim holidays, the the so-called Eid, where, where, where sheep are slaughtered. Uh, so uh, you you get enough food, you get uh, you get even very healthy food because uh, people started to grow, yeah, in fact, organic uh, local food in their gardens. But uh, everything that has to be imported uh, is relatively expensive and and inaccessible for poor people. Uh, this is especially problematic uh, if you need certain medicine uh, that is not so easy to get. So the health system uh, really collapsed after uh, 2012 when the Syrian state disappeared from the region. Meanwhile, uh, they reopened some, uh, uh, some some hospitals and there are some doctors in the region. However, also many of the doctors left because these were these parts of the population who could afford a smuggler, for example, to bring them to Europe when the civil war in Syria started. So uh, so the, the infrastructure for medical care is still very problematic, especially if you need uh, intensive care. I mean, if you have a heart attack in Rojava at the moment, it's very much likely that you die uh, because of the heart attack. 
uh, or if you need uh, a specific medicine that goes beyond uh, aspirin or something like that. Uh, so, um, I, I would say uh, life, yeah, the, the, you, you get enough uh, goods uh, if you can afford them. Uh, people can, uh, can eat, there's nobody starving on hunger in, in Rojava at the moment. Uh, however, uh, for many people, it's it's hard to finance uh, meat and to pay for for anything that has to be imported from abroad. Uh, besides that, you have a more or less uh, yeah a more or less existing para state. So you have everything that the state would have as well. You have a police, you have school system, uh, you have an administration, you have uh, have a mayor in every village and town. So there is some kind of a, a normality in the region, and uh, people also can can participate in this administration. Uh, even if they're uh, members of an uh, ethnic or religious minority, it's not just the Kurdish administration. There are also Arabs and, and Turkmen's and Christian Assyrians, uh, Armenians involved in the administration. However, uh, there are also problems with some parts of these minorities as well. For example, one of the major problems is the school system. There was a school system, a Kurdish school system erected by the administration. Uh, however, the religious and ethnic minorities kept their own schools. And, uh, and especially the Arab minority still uses uh, state-sponsored schools who are run by the Syrian uh, Ministry of Education. And uh, just recently, some of the Christian schools were closed down because they were still teaching according to the uh, to the Syrian government. And one of the Christian allies of the PYD in the administration wanted to change these Christian schools into Aramaic-speaking schools with an own curriculum. Uh, and there was a lot of conflict going on about that issue as well. So, um, so, so I think the future uh, organization of, of multilingualism and, and, multi, and a multi-ethnic administration in the region is still a process that is going on. However, the Kurdish administration uh, wants to include these other uh, populations of northern Syria into their administration. It doesn't always work the same way uh, it could work, or it doesn't work always perfectly. But at least I see uh, that that they want to establish a political system that is not just a copy of a nation state for the Kurds, 
but a more inclusive system uh, for all the minorities in the region. Yeah, that's a, certainly a very hopeful outlook. So uh, I, we, I will just have one question, one final question as we wind up the interview. Something you brought up just now in the discussion and that a couple of people in the interview section of your book uh, raised, which I wish we had enough time to talk about that. I think it's very interesting that you included a whole chapter of, of interviews. You don't often see that in an ethnography. But is the refugee crisis, it kind of, you get the impression that it might be a bit of, I don't know if a double-edged sword is quite the right term, but it gives hope for people escaping to Europe. But then I know one of your um, informants um, mentioned that she felt it indicated that they, that the Europeans were not sincere in their commitment to Syria. And you mentioned um, something about um, uh, the emigration of doctors. So wh- wh- what do we see with the refugee crisis? How does that manifest itself in Rojava? First of all, I think one of the uh, the big topics that is completely underestimated and under-researched in Europe and also in the U.S. when talking about the Syrian refugee crisis is that uh, the largest group of Syrian refugees are not refugees, but internally displaced persons. So uh, it's not just like that, that people from Syria flee to Turkey or to Europe. It's also like that, that uh, millions of Syrians fled from one part of Syria to other parts of Syria. And as Rojava is uh, the the safest part of the region, many of these internally displaced persons also fled from Arab parts of Syria to the Kurdish parts of Syria. And uh, it was very hard for the administration in this region, especially at the beginning in uh, 2012 and 2013, to deal with this influx of internally displaced persons, because there was no humanitarian infrastructure at all, and also uh, international uh, organizations and NGOs uh, did not or did... uh, very rarely work in Syrian Kurdistan. Uh, and, and when I came there in January 2013, for example, I saw a lot of refugees from Aleppo uh, and other parts of, of Syria, not only Kurds, also a lot of Arabs uh, who lived under, under horrible circumstances. For example, I've seen children with, uh, with frozen legs, you know, who, who really had had uh, had had no shoes and and who were who were running around in in the winter in Syria with minus uh, degrees of Celsius yeah uh, so it, it, on the frozen ground of of Syria uh, and uh, the, this situation became a little bit better with the years because they. Uh, these refugees, these IDPs either became refugees and managed to flee uh, through Turkey to Europe or uh, could become somehow integrated into the uh, in the population there. But there are still uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees, of IDPs inside Rojava from other parts of Syria and it's still a, a big problem to deal with these crises there. 
Uh, and you can imagine that it's much more difficult for, for the administration to deal with that than for a, a state like Germany to deal with refugees from Syria, a state that is that has everything. You know? uh, however, one of the problems of, of, of the refugee migration in Syria is really that... Uh, Thanks to the uh, European refugee politics, uh, it became very difficult and very expensive to flee to Europe. So meanwhile, you need a smuggler, and smugglers are quite expensive, uh, that you have the opportunity to come to Europe and to apply for asylum there. This means that only families with a certain kind of wealth managed to pay a smuggler and managed to flee to Europe. And this means, for example, that uh, yeah, the more educated people, more wealthy people manage to flee while poor people are staying behind. Uh, that also means that a lot of professional also would be needed in Syria left while uh, there is a shortage of, of, of professionals now in the region. So, uh, of course, uh, the, the selection process of refugees in Europe leads to a kind of brain drain in the region. And this is especially difficult for, for religious minorities in the region. Uh, for example, the Yazidis, because the, yeah, the intellectual heads, the well-educated Yazidis from Afrin, uh, they managed to flee to Europe. And this means also that the people who stay behind uh, lost lot of its leadership you know they they are they are even more vulnerable than they were when they still had uh, this class of of of, of educated uh, people there uh, however i think that the the leading party there is as the leading party is partly based on these lower classes. Uh, they try to encourage also these lesser educated people to take their uh, life in their own hands. However, of course, it's not something where you can, uh, I mean, you, you cannot educate doctors, you cannot educate engineers, you cannot educate, educate other professionals within a year or two. So I think uh, even if the war would stop soon, uh, this brain drain would still affect the region. And uh, of course, it would need a generation to rebuild also the intellectual capacity. And with, uh, with the stabilization of Kobania and some of these um, 
uh, arguably, arguably, arguable success stories that you've mentioned about at least stabilization. Do you see, and maybe you don't have the data on this yet, but do you see or do you believe that there's a return of some of these refugees, these higher education, higher skilled professional refugees back to the region? I think some of them would return if uh, there would be some stability. So if we would have a, a peace treaty between the regime and the administration of the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, and if it would be uh, clear that this would work, a part of the refugees would maybe return back. However, this is also a question of time. Uh, the longer they stay in Europe, the longer their kids grow up in Europe, the more it becomes difficult for them to return. So if the civil war in Syria will take another 10 years, uh, the number of refugees who would return will be very, very limited. Of course, many of the refugees, when you talk to them in Europe, still dream of a return. But uh, at the end of the day, I don't think that the masses of people will return. I've seen that in Iraq as well. You know, I know a lot of Iraqis who live in Europe who fled uh, during the period of Saddam Hussein and who lived in Europe for 30 years or longer. Uh, some of them uh, returned half of the year when they retired in Europe and they go there and back. But at the end of the day, if you manage to reorganize your life in exile and when your kids grew up in exile, most of the people will not. All right. Well, thank you very much, Professor Schmidinger, for sitting down with us and uh, giving us this interview. And uh, we wish you well in your next project. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening to New Books and Anthropology, the podcast channel on the New Books Network.